Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Harry Miller, a former police officer and founder of the campaigning group Fair Cop. Harry came to public attention after his former employer, Humberside Constabulary, visited his place of work to, quote, check his thinking, unquote. Harry had not committed any crime, but nevertheless, posts made on his social media account were considered by the police to show hatred toward the transgender community. They advised him that if he did not temper his tweeting, this could amount to an escalation to crime. In 2019, Harry took the police to the high court. The judge ruled that Harry's tweets were not even in the footholds of criminality and that, in interfering with Miller's right to free speech, Humberside had behaved like the Stasi, the Cheka, and the Gestapo. Earlier this month, Harry was in court again, this time at the Court of Appeals, to challenge the College of Policing hate crime guidance. The result of that hearing is due any time. Welcome to Savage Minds, Harry Miller. I'm very happy to have you on the show today because, you know, your, your writing for Savage Minds is excellent and people are loving it, not only because you're really good with the pen, but you also get right at the root of the problem. And in this last article, as we were doing the editing process, you realized in some of my communications to you, I was like, is this for real? There really is no way for someone to know if someone has made a complaint about them unless they somehow, by coincidence, get a background check and that comes up. Can you explain to our listeners who are from all over the planet what we're talking about? Okay, so since 2014, uh, the College of Policing, which is the professional body overseeing all the police forces in England and Wales, um, they issued this thing called the, the hate crime guidance. And the hate crime guidance categorizes hate in two ways. It categorizes hate as, as a motivator for crime. So that's criminal hate. But then it also has this strange thing called non-crime. Um, and that's an incident. So a non-crime hate incident is any incident which anybody perceives as being motivated by hate. Now, what's really disturbing about this is that you don't need any evidence of either an incident or any element of hate. It says it right there in the in the College of Policing guidance. No evidence of hate is necessary for the recording of a hate incident. It's purely down to the perception. So anybody with a grudge can simply point their finger. Um, and the accusation will stick, and it will stick because the College of Policing mandate it to stick. Um, we, we, we consider this to be um, just utterly immoral, um, illogical, irrational. It goes against everything that we understand justice to be, and that's why uh, we ended up in the, the Court of Appeal just, just last week, actually, challenging the College of Policing and saying... You know, you've got to throw this guidance in the bin because it's it's every flavor of wrong. So that's what that's what my particular fight is about. And I know you're not going to receive the judgment for some time. It will be out in May. Is that correct? We don't know. We don't know that the, the the optimistic school of thought is that it may come in before Easter, which is only you know a couple of weeks away. Um. The reason for that is that I understand, and I didn't know this, that the legal year runs from Easter 
through to Easter. So it may be that the court want to wipe up their business from this current year before they launch into their new legal year. Uh, I, I Personally, I think it's unlikely because whichever way the Court of Appeal rules, they're going to have to write up a very, very long justification because it can go one of two ways. They can either rule in, in my favour, in which case um, the, the, the College of Policing has to get rid of their ridiculous hate crime guidance. And then what, do, what are they going to do with 120,000 non-crime hate incidents they've got recorded against people? Um, what, what are they going to do with those? Because if mine was unjust, then there's 120 other thousand, 120,000 other unjust ones. What are they going to do with that? So it, it's a big decision if the Court of Appeal rule in my favour. It undermines um, policing, um, not just in this country, but right across Europe. This notion of perception-based crime and perception-based non-crime is... Is, is it's a fading ideology which has crept into policing right the way across Europe. So where, where, you, where, where Britain goes, Europe tends to follow. Um, and so they've got a huge decision to make. But on the other hand, if they rule, if they rule against me and in favour of the College of Policing, what they're doing is they are agreeing that secret police recordings for non-crimes, which are entirely unchallengeable, is a good thing. So either either they've got to support the police and go against liberty or support liberty and undermine the police. It's going to take the wisdom of Solomon um, and the bravery of a David to, um, to sort of square that circle, I think. I mean, I, I, I do think that we had a very good bench, um, unlike at the, the High Court where we had one judge uh, at the court of appeal we have three judges we had um we had two women you know, very very senior judges and, and, and a fella and they did seem to get it in fact lady justice similar she had this incredible moment where i think it dawned on her what we were talking about because she said to the opposing counsel she said it seems to me that i would be better off having committed a crime than merely having committed an incident. Because if I if I was accused of a crime, then I can rely on the presumption of innocence and the burden of proof rests with the police, which gives me some degree of protection. But if I'm simply accused of an incident, there is no burden of proof required. There's not even any evidence required. So I'd be better off being accused of a crime than an incident. How can that possibly be? And to be fair, it wasn't only her eyebrow that raised. I mean, her entire face was a was a was a was was a picture of puzzlement. And to be fair, she got that. She's one of the few that does get it. I, I realised this um, eighteen months ago that I'd have been far better off having been accused of a crime. Mm -hmm. Um, than simply an incident, because with a crime, I could defend myself. You say I didn't do it, um, unless you can prove that I've done it. My record is clean. Not so with an incident. So that that that's that's where we are. Yes, and it's this kind of uh, slowly boiling frog that we see within yeah. the trans encroachment of women's and children's rights, where women. I just interviewed 
Linda Blade yesterday and she detailed for me how, and others as well have detailed how the International Olympic Committee never asked women's sports figures what they thought about having men on their teams, but they did invite men who identified as to be part of that decision to let us out of our own sporting category. And similarly, this kind of detailing of a hate incident, but it's one of those gray areas. Again, like I said in the introduction, we wouldn't necessarily know we had any points against us unless we actively went to search it out or someone did it for us in a background check. And you know, this can cost people their livelihoods as well. They can be they can cost them potential jobs if a potential employer sees that they've had a hate crime incident on their background check. How did this even happen in a country like the UK, where even before you left the EU, wouldn't there have been checks and balances? Isn't there a, a logic to everyone having to face their accuser? You would think. Now, I'm going to be generous here for a moment and say that this non-crime hate incident thing came from came from a good place. It, it, it comes from uh, the McPherson report and... Um, McPherson did a report into the into the murder of a young black man called Stephen Lawrence, and he 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 found McPherson was a was a, a senior High Court judge, and in his inquiry he he uncovered the fact that the police at the time in the nineteen nineties and presumably in the nineteen eighties and seventies before that, um, they were institutionally racist, and I've got to say I think McPherson had a point. Um, it may not have been the overt, overt type of racism, the, you know, the the harsher type of racism, but it was a racism at the very least by omission in that they would look at the black community and they would stereotype uh, the black community as simply being criminals rather than victims, that if something happened to them, well, it was probably a drug deal that had gone wrong. They were, you know, all that kind of indirect discrimination. And um, so McPherson discovered that the, the police were were wrong not to have acted on intelligence um, that they had, uh, which might possibly have been able to predict what was going to happen. And therefore, they would have been in a position to prevent it. But even having happened, even, even following the death, uh, the, the inquiry and the investigation that was taken by the Metropolitan Police, again, was steeped in, in um, systemic racism. And still to this day, I don't think there's anybody, anybody has anybody gone to prison for it? I, I can't quite remember. Um, but so, so, so this idea of perception-based recording came from a good place. So what McPherson meant by it was that if a community says, look, guys, we've got a problem, We've got a problem. We, it may not be criminal. It, you know, we may not have been thumped yet, but we've got people following us. We've got the same people standing on street corners looking at us and making us feel uneasy and uncomfortable. Um, and McPherson said that kind of intelligence, which, you know, it doesn't constitute a crime, but that sort of intelligence the police need to record and to take seriously in order to build up an intelligence picture in order to prevent escalation. Now, that's what was supposed to happen, but that's not what's happened. 
what we have now, rather than the police actually doing their job and collecting good, sound intelligence in order to protect a vulnerable community, they've taken the very easy option of simply policing people's thoughts, policing people's tweets, policing people's speech. And what's tragic is they, that they think, they believe this is what McPherson meant them to do. And of course, it's not. What we have here is, to, it, it, we've got uh, Plato's cave. Um, you know, it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a very, very old metaphor, isn't it? Uh, the, the metaphor of Plato's, the allegory of Plato's cave. Um, but that's what's happened. The police have mistaken the shadows on the cave from the actual substance uh, that they're supposed to be policing. And they're patting themselves on the back and saying, isn't it wonderful? We've been, you know, we've we've caught all these people saying rude things or naughty things or saying men, men can't be women, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they honestly think that this is what McPherson meant. Now, I know people who know the late uh, Mr. McPherson, and um, they told me to a man that he would, he's horrified by what the police have done with, uh, with with this report, because that is not what McPherson meant the police to do. But of course, it's so much easier to police tweets than it is to police streets. And they've taken the easy option. In your article, your last article, you referred to Mr. Justice Knowles' words, comparing yeah. the police to the Stasi, the Cheka, the Gestapo, was that comparison fair? Yeah, I think it was. Now, I, I've heard it. I've heard it said that um, Mr. Justice Knowles used that hyperbolic language, uh, basically to you know give me, in, basically to satisfy me, in the hope that I would jump up and down, shout hallelujah, and and walk away. Um, well, that was a that was a. It was a reasonable misjudgment, but it was a misjudgment nevertheless, because I was never particularly bothered about what PC Gull and Humberside Police had done to me. I found it, I found it outrageous when they came and came to my place of work to investigate me because of what I'd been tweeting. But it was more, more as a point of principle um, than personal, I think, because I'm an ex-policeman myself. Um, I'm I'm financially pretty independent. Um, I own my own company. I'm not rich by any means, but it's a comfortable level of poverty, if you know what I mean. I'm I'm not sort of wondering where my next meal's uh, going to come from. So personally, I was quite happy to you know tell PC Gull to just bugger off. Um, but what I what I recognised was that in in approaching me in the way that he did, based on this, based on the accusation of one lunatic um, accuser who'd been offended by something I'd said, um, but th this 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 was a real problem to me. You know, I, I'm a I like to think of myself as a as a good, honest citizen, and, and I like to think of myself as being part of the grand tradition of of Englishmen um, who would who would stand up and do the right thing, who would, who would fight the French at Agincourt, who would fight the Germans um, in Europe, who would stand up against 
Nazism uh, and what have you. I've always considered myself to be just a decent sort of bloke. So when when the police came and started talking this absolute nonsense and um, they famously came and said, we need to check your thinking, I, 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 this affronted me. This, this, this affronted me in every single level, except really, I suppose, personal. I like to care less. But as an Englishman, as, an, as a free person, as a person who believes in the principle of liberty, I was I was highly offended by it. Highly offended. Um, so when when Mr. Justice Knowles agreed with me that the actions of Humberside Police were absolutely crazy, and he likened Humberside to the Stasi, the Cheka, and the Gestapo, I think a lot of people thought that that would satisfy me, and I would then walk away happy and rejoicing, and I would leave the bigger beast, the College of Policing and its ridiculous hate crimes guidance alone. And, and, and they were wrong because it was always the College of Police Crimes, hate crimes guidance that I was after. As far as I'm concerned, PC Gold and Humberside, that was a little skirmish in the foothills. The College of Policing is the behemoth on the mountain, and that's the one I want to take down. Well, in the States, hate crime legislation got kicked into gear in the aftermath of Matthew Shepard's murder the gay mm -hmm. man who was brutally murdered. And yeah. these cases become emblematic as this societal, even cultural nexus point for people to come to terms with the fact that things were bad for say gay men or gay women. And so we're gonna write that wrong by yeah. clamping down. Now the sentiment of guilt is something very human. I can understand people feeling even guilty because how many people haven't murdered a gay person, but were certainly homophobic. And I yeah. think a lot of what's caught up in legislation to make hate crime a reality, or these unofficial, not laws, but codes and suggestions that become heavy handed, yeah. are those people who suffer a form of, of guilt over what they have done or haven't done in their lives. And this to me parallel some of the issues that you'll see in the States, very interesting arguments on both sides for and against payments to African-Americans because of slavery. And so yeah. the, uh, you know, I've, I've thought over the years about these arguments because the slavery issue comes up every 15 years or so in the States. Mm -hmm. And I've thought yeah. long and hard about this and what benefits and what other system could be made better. But censorship of ideas, of ideas being language, because how we think, even if you tell me that I'm free to think as I want, but I just can't speak those thoughts because you're the arch lord of all things, I still use language to think. And this is the pernicious part about hate speech. It's a hate speech censorship is that it's controlling our basic way of even relating to ourselves. It's not only about what I can say to you or what I could email you or send someone in a, you know, a cutout like kidnapping style letter. It's the way that we use words to think about our reality. And you came to this encounter with the police where you live because of the trans activists. And this has been something that has popped out all sorts of issues. On the one hand, women's and children's rights, but freedom of thought and speech is a really big freedom that we cannot take for granted because 
as you probably have heard, there's been now an arrest in Canada of a yeah. man who simply wanted and wants to protect his daughter. So there is a real undertow to this movement that's going at all avenues. It's, uh, do you remember the jam jars incident a few years ago where you know, Heather Brunskill-Evans and Julie Bindel and other women were on the stairs waiting to enter and they were attacked by Sisters Uncut members? Yep. Yep. Well, the person who put that together, uh, a man who was not involved in this discussion before, he lost housing over this. I mean, I've talked to people who've lost jobs, who've lost opportunities to work <clears throat> in new jobs, people who have been sidelined from their entire social circles. Mm. So we're seeing where this policing of language is happening quite overtly and proudly. And people seem to have no self-conscious. I was told in a group, Reclaim These Streets, over the past 48 hours that I'm transphobic because I said men are not women. Hmm. You couldn't yeah. get into medical school if you said something like that, that men are women. Well, no, 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 I don't think anybody actually believes any of this nonsense, do they? I mean, we, we did, um, I downloaded the College of Policing's accounts from Company's House uh, a few weeks ago because unbelievably, the College of Policing is a private limited company uh, just the same as Specsavers is a private limited company. So um, one of the benefits of that is that the, their financial records are um, are accessible. So I downloaded their accounts. And uh, apart from apart from the very real problem of the amount of money they're spending, which is over 50, over 50 million a year, and the amount of people they're employing, over 650, on an average salary of around about 56,000 each. I mean, that's a that's a problem in itself. But when you when you really delve down into the the, the accounts, you find a section on um, that maps their uh, their employees um, and the nature of their employees, the nature of the workforce. And for all of the College of Policing's insistence that there are more genders than male and female, guess how they record all their employees? It's only two categories, male and female. Because they know, they know. Accounts, uh, accountancy is a brutal, is a brutal discipline. Uh, it takes no prisoners whatsoever. And this is where we find what they really think and what they really do. You delve into their accounts and they're as transphobic as you and I. They know that they only have two types of employee, male and female. It's just, it's just the whole thing is so dishonest. Well, this is ripe for an airplane style comedy. Can you imagine, you know, picking up the, the radio and saying, you know, patrol unit 38, we're on the lookout for a agender, non-binary, topsy-turvy, blue-haired, unequal style <laughs> cut. You know, like, I'm sorry. It's, and then <laughs> people might, you know, the woke might say, oh, that's very mean. But, you know, Harry, I've had it. I go through periods of just thinking, am I in some kind of nightmare that I haven't woken up from? Because to read in, you know, reclaim the streets, Men yeah. are in there. There was a discussion about, should we allow men in this group? I kid you not. When I said, well, there are 
there are men who claim to be women in this group. And what I take issue, I don't have a problem if men are in this group, but let's not pretend that the men who identify as transgender are less of a threat. It's right up there with Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck kind of antics, like when Bugs Bunny puts on the glasses and tells Elmer Fudd, you wouldn't shoot someone with glasses now, or when he does the infamous, you know, Barber of Seville, and he's tricked Elmer Fudd. Now Elmer Fudd, of course, doesn't know it's, you know, Bugs Bunny giving him the, the haircut and beard cut. So what is with this willful play? Because it isn't uh, ignorance. I don't think people are that stupid to think that a man donning a frock now escapes all predatory categories that men statistically fit into. Hence, we have separate showers at the gym. We have separate toilets at the restaurants. Not because you are a predator, but no. because your sex category has that history and present. When a thousand years go by and there are no longer, like people have to say, mommy, what's rape? I read that in a book and say, oh, it's something that existed a long time ago, son. I'll tell you about it when you're old enough. But, you know, we, that's not the reality. The reality is that we're seeing leftist activists pushing drag time story hour. They're they're pushing some of the most pedophilic and predatory nonsense on people simply because it's this notion that saying yes to everything is good. Like, it's weird. I almost think their brains work like saying yes means you're a progressive leftist. Saying no means you're a closed-minded brute, right wing. And it's weird because that's not how reality works. Uh, all things yes are not good and all things no are not bad or vice versa. But there's this notion within the left that if anyone dare speak about, let's say, well, men in dresses are still men. I swear, when I read the comments and I got you know, practically booted out of the group, I might be now, I just thought, well, these are intelligent people. They all have incredibly uh, elaborate vocabulary. They've, they've been to likely the university and they're buying into something that if they said it in a job interview, for many jobs, they'd be disqualified immediately because they would be considered either crazy or difficult. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we're yeah. dealing with a demographic, even within the College of Policing, like who's calling up the police to make complaints? Well, we saw this in Canada. Jonathan Yaniv was told by his local, was it fire department, I believe, that if he called up again, he'd be charged with offensive communications. It's when he got stuck in the bath. Yes, yes. And he keeps <laughs> making really vexatious claims about people. Um, yeah. The Jonathan Yaniv in the UK also exists, who has a penchant for golfing. And um, it's interesting that in the UK, this person has been able to bring case after case against anyone he perceives as transphobic, but I have yet to see an argument made that this person is abusing the legal system, making vexatious claims against women mostly, but also men. Yeah, it, it's a problem because we, we have this thing, in the, again, in the College of Policing hate crime guidance, they have this thing called secondary victimization. And if you read the definition of secondary victimization, it basically prevents police officers for applying any test of reasonableness or rationality to a complaint because hey ho if you question the accuser 
then you are turning them into a secondary victim. You are then committing a hate crime against them by not believing them. Um, so th th there is there simply is no filter, um, no possibility ever filter really to siphon out the the lunatic. So in my case, we had we had one accuser in my case, someone who was granted uh, the status of a protected state given anonymity by the police and they were they were designated as mrs b now that's a scary name isn't it mrs b anyway mrs b submitted a statement to the police which the police then submitted to the high court and the statement said that 80 years ago and they said this without 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 pausing coughing stuttering or laughing they said 80 years ago, I would have been persecuting the Jews. 40 years ago, I would have been persecuting the blacks. 30 years ago, I would have been persecuting the gays. That's what it said. And the police read this out to the high court as the witness statement as to why it was correct that I was I, I should be deemed a transfer a dangerous transphobic hater. That's just utter nonsense. I mean. You know, 80 years ago, I wasn't even a twinkle in my grandparents' eye. It's just it's just nonsense. But of course, there simply is no filter. There is no filter because the second the police apply a filter, hey, hey ho, the accuser can then accuse the police of committing secondary victimization. This is also interesting because if this is drawn out to its full dimensions when words in 40 years are understood as hateful, people could f feasibly go back in time and say, oh, but this person said on the BBC this, and now that word is verboten, so let's go after them. In a, in a way that we do see when, uh, I mean, it's not a, a complete parallel, but yes, when you're seeing very low level, 90 year old former Nazi guards standing trial and it's like, wait a sec. And I, I've recently gotten into looking at the judgment at Nuremberg. I'm quite fascinated by this, the way in which it was decided which would be the top tier to prosecute. And then in the years later, lower tiered individuals were prosecuted. But we all know that when you are, best example I can come up with now is the war on terror pretty much resulted in one conviction of Saddam Hussein's driver. And that's pretty bad because a driver anywhere in the developing world is going to be someone who's a step from living on the street. These are people who are picked up and they're given yeah. a job. So yeah. to think that the United States has, after all their special registration nonsense, where they had every man from Muslim backgrounds had to go into then the INS, Immigration Naturalization Service, which became later Homeland Security, had to be interviewed and explain their reason for being in the States, hmm. all Muslim countries with the exception of North Korea, and they had to all do special registration. Meanwhile, there were 14,000 Muslim men disappeared from the United States during the first two years after 9-11. Hmm. And all for this, we got Saddam Hussein's driver hmm. overseas. And with, there were the black sites, you know, about the waterboarding and the other torture methods. And I'm thinking, this isn't a very good turnaround. I mean, for all the alleged 
threat made to us, we didn't see it in terms of um, post 9-11, that is. We didn't see anything come out of it. And the guilty parties were the most anodyne actors on the, on the scene. And then the actual issue with what constitutes hate speech. I mean, what is hate speech? Well, you know, Matthew Shepard was killed because he was gay by individuals who were homophobic and it could be even argued some might have been homosexual and self-hating homosexuals. I mean, who knows if you were to follow the lives of those individuals mm. until their end. But we have seen this kind of push to criminalize any thought, because this is the other part, is the police are being put in the position of having to be the thermometer for public engagement. So right now, where trans is the biggest thing that you get brownie points for getting another transphobe, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What happens in 10 years when this is on the other side of the hill and we're seeing it debunked? We're seeing the Tavistock is, I think the Tavistock is going to crumble sooner or later because it's not possible that the 4,000% increase in referrals, the use of these very dangerous puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, which have resulted in all kinds of physical damage from bone density loss to possible sterilization to other functions. I mean, in the studies that were done on sheep, there are issues around brain function. So mm. how is it possible that then in 10 years, these very same police officers who've aged 10 years might then have the mandate to then report the people who are sending their kids to gender clinics, if that were the case. I'm not in favor of that either. I do think that there needs to be some kind of moderation on how we even understand the police's role in enforcing what seems to be public policy and not law in the sense of, if I hate you, let's say I hate you because you wear glasses and I have this weird thing against glasses. Well, that's my right. It might, I might not be the nicest person because I hate people with glasses, but why should the police be involved in policing that or recording that. Similarly, if I hate Christmas or I, because I have another you know, issue with Christmas trees, or maybe I'm a super ecologist and I think people chopping down trees are evil. Why should the police be invested in recording what I deem to be in my very well-funded lobby has the police on speed dial to report anyone who is not using a plastic Christmas tree. You know, this becomes really insane when you start to enter in all the possible equations that could be put into that machinery. And we have the police going to Posey Parker's door to say she has engaged in hate speech, telling you you've engaged in wrong thought. Where does it end? Well, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I got into, um, I caused a minor, a minor Twitter storm uh, by when I use the hashtag say yes to hate. Um, but I, I still stand by that because hate is an emotion. It's an emotion and you're absolutely right. You know, you can hate me for whatever reason you goddamn well like. It's no business of the police. You can hate me. You can hate me because I'm white. You can hate me because I'm male. You can hate me because um, I've you know, I wear glasses. You can hate me because 
I'm a Christian. You can hate me for whatever reason you damn well like, as far as I'm concerned. It's your right to do that. It's simply an emotion. And it's got nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the police. The only time that the police should be involved in hate is where that hate boils over and is tending toward criminal action. At that point, if you so hate me that you want to burst out of the screen um, and, you know, thump me on the nose, then fine. You know, it's great if the police can recognise that level of hatred um, coupled with, you know, a, a, an opportunity and, and they can get to you before you do my face damage. That's, that's great. But hate in and of itself Screw that. It's got, it's got nothing to do with the police. Nothing. And this idea that, ah, well, hate can be a precursor to something else. Well, of course it can. Of course it can. But then again, envy can. Then again, <laughs> jealousy can. Are we, 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 are, we are in the domain of priests. We're not going to say, you know, we're going to we're going to come down heavily on envy because we've noticed a link between envy and theft. Like it's just it's just ridiculous. It's utterly utterly ridiculous. And the other thing, of course, that, that gets me is the people who jump up and down saying, "Harry, you should not have used the hashtag say yes to hate." They're very quickly to express their hatred at the things they want they wish to feel hatred towards. So, again, a bit like the College of Policing with their, on the one hand, saying that, they, that they, they validate all genders, but their accounts only talk about males and females. And we have this ridiculous level of, well, well being cruel, I would call it hypocrisy. Being kind, I would, see, I would say it's simply a lack of self-awareness. People want the freedom to hate. And I, I absolutely stand by that right. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. There's that category of person who says, well, I don't judge others. I'm not judgmental. And when they, you know, get me around them for two minutes, I turn around and I inevitably say, <laughs> of course you do. Of well, course. no, I wouldn't judge anyone. I say, Everything we do is about judgment. We judge when we drive. Are we going to take a left turn here or there? Are we going to wear this or that in the morning? What are we ordering at the restaurant? And in the days of going to restaurants. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's very important that people understand that judgment and Kant wrote loads about judgment. The idea that we are a product of our decisions and decisions require yeah. making judgments. Now, the idea that I'm supposed to say being transgender is brave. Well, <laughs> I tell you, a lot of things I don't think are, are brave and that's one of them. Uh, I simply don't. And I also don't think that someone who identifies as is what they identify as in the sense of, if you are a race car driver, I presume that you actively race cars. I don't presume that you're at home playing Nintendo race car driving games. I make that distinction. And I think if you're a cook, well, you can say you're a cook, but you better well have something to show for that cooking. Not that you watch a lot of 
top chef shows, right? So I think we have made the mistake, and the internet is largely to blame for this, but also narcissism yeah. and materialism. I think this idea that words make us and not our actions is what's happening here. And it's a very interesting mm -hmm. thing to me because I had a really great classics professor years ago who taught us about the word fingere, which is a word that in Latin means it comes from making clay and molding. It's also the word basis for fiction, storytelling. And he talks about in the days of Plato that there was truth and there was lie. The idea of fiction is something that developed over time. There was no morality behind why someone did right or wrong. It was, it was very much, did they tell the truth or did they not? Not why did you lie or why did you tell the truth? Where we have more complex systems today to sort of say, well, he identifies as a woman and now we've got the backup choir saying, therefore he's really a woman. Then we've got all these institutions saying, you damn well better say he's a woman. Oops, she's a woman or else. And there are so many levels of bullshit on this gender tortilla that we are screwed to get out of it. Like I've, I just realized being in the Facebook group, Reclaim These Streets, that the people in there have disempowered women, women themselves are doing this, by the way, to such a degree that how are we supposed to discuss the brutal murder of Everard or our safety on the streets, be it in the UK, be it on the streets of Chile or Santiago de Chile, if we can't agree what a woman is. If we're going to pretend that all it takes for you to be a vulnerable person, Harry, is for you to put some lippy and a, a frock on. And that if I put on my 501s and cowboy boots, then I'm a potential rapist. I mean, this is ridiculous. If everything's about feeling investiture, then we have completely stepped away from the notion of reality. And that's a judgment that the judgy, the people who say I'm not judgy, um, need to step back and evaluate. Because this notion that they're being agreeable by saying, I don't judge, is a lie. It's very much the same lie that people who say, but trans women are women, because you know damn well that they're not. These people don't really believe it. No, of course they don't. They, they, you know, they're not going to sleep with one, are they? They're not, they're not going to date one. They're not going to do that. They're, they're, they're simply not. You know, if you're, if you're a bloke and you're attracted to women, you're attracted to women. You're not attracted to trans women. It's as simple as that. And you can call that, you can call that transphobia. You can call it what the hell you want. But I call it reality. It just, it just ain't going to change. And when we see Owen Jones dating a woman who identifies as a man, I would then maybe give some of his words credence, but we're not seeing that. We're seeing the likes of Owen Jones run about the interweb calling lesbians transphobes because they say that, so-and-so is not a lesbian because he's a man. And yeah. this goes back to then why and how did the police get involved in policing this kind of language? Like, how did the college policing get that memo? Was this something brought on by Stonewall? Was this brought on by other groups? 
Yeah, I th- I, yeah, absolutely. It's been brought up, but I think I think at the root of all of it, it's 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 a case of the emperor's no new clothes, isn't it? That um, encumbered by by the by history and a history of racism and um, homophobia and, and all the rest of it, um, they're afraid of telling the truth um, lest they be considered racists, homophobes or fools but they all know they all know deep down that what they're talking is quite literally bollocks they they know it they just don't admit it they don't be the first one to admit it um in in case they be thought of as you know as somehow evil and regressive it's um it's terrible then of course it all gets fully ingrained because they they invite in these highly ideological uh, cultish type um, human rights groups, so-called human rights groups like Stonewall, and then Stonewall embed their ideology into into police policy. I mean, um, I, I, eighteen months ago, uh, one of my moles in the Mets called us to a meeting, and we we, we met at a, at a at a little cafe, and we had bacon and eggs and a lovely time. And uh, we logged on to the uh, police intranet and um, he showed me documents. And you're looking through and thinking, this is absolute nonsense. Who's written it? Who's writing this, this nonsense? And it was about how, how police officers should treat, um, should treat prisoners in custody. And it, it said that a prisoner, a prisoner has the right to name their, name their gender and to be searched by, by a police officer of the corresponding gender. It says it right there. So what do you do if you, if you get arrested and you say, okay, I'm, either, I'm not male and I'm not female, but get this, I'm not trans either. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm, you know, what I am is I'm Tetris gender. Now, according, according to the police policy, they're gonna have to, the police are gonna have to go off and find a Tetris gender officer to come and do a search on me. Well, it's it's utter nonsense, isn't it? I mean, there are no Tetris gender officers because Tetris gender is entirely made up. It's it's nonsense. Um, but this this is what happens when you will allow ideologues to come in and to insert their cultish language into 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 policy documents. Um, and then the application of that policy then becomes entirely arbitrary, entirely arbitrary. Well, that's not the basis for law, and it's certainly no basis for uh, for the police to be, um, you know, who have the power to hold hold people in custody, have the power to search people. I mean, one of the one of the things that my my, my friend was so concerned with was that on a Saturday night, you know, you pull in some hairy arsed bloke. And you think that he's got a wrap of drugs wrapped round his penis end or up his arse or something like that. All he needs to do is say, tell you what, mate, I'm a woman. And then my police officer friend has then got to find a woman, one of his police, one of his police women, to come down and do the search, an intimate body search. And he said to me, he said, Harry, this is terrible because, in effect, what I'm doing is I am going to be ordering my staff to be sexually assaulted. 
That's just it's just wrong on every single level. And I place the blame entirely, well, partly at, uh, at Stonewall's feet. But, but you know, lunatics are going to loon. That we, we know that. They've got this agenda. And um, good luck to them when they try and get it inserted into everything. I, the, the real culprits are, are, are the police, the CPS, the entire justice system, and any organisation that invites these lunatics in to write their policy because it is, it's utter lunacy. We're in a trench at the moment. I feel like the fire is coming from all directions. We've got trans activists who can't even decide what their identity is. You have those that are fighting to have it taken out of the diagnostic statistics manual. Others who are saying it has to remain there or they won't be covered by insurance. Then more recently, I saw two days ago, Amazon was going to delist any book, get this, any book where the relationship between gender dysphoria and transgender identity is made. That's yeah. how we have transgender identity today because it came along from psychiatric manuals mm. like the DSM. It was considered even if tomorrow it's decided to be taken away from this manual and removed entirely, which, mm. wow, uh, let's hope not. Um, it has made its way to us because of psychiatry. So now they want to burn the bridges that brought it to us and make it as if it's just comme des garçons, uh, Gucci. It's another brand of identity. And as a leftist who finds myself completely alone in this with a few voices out there, thank goodness, but pretty much alone because the left has lost its sense of direction in terms of addressing class issues, poverty, historical material reality. Uh, this is one of the most divisive narratives in, in, I would even say it is the most divisive narrative I've witnessed in my lifetime because this is the one narrative that atomizes individuals, it separates us and everyone for themselves. Well, especially in lockdown, we've seen who's, who's able to spend the time with themselves and who not. I mean, the way everything has taken place in lockdown, it's been women primarily, not just in, in the UK, but across the planet who have had to give up their jobs to stay home because still they are the ones who tend to have the lesser income. Now, then you have, I just saw that you retweeted Claire Fox's going against the latest proposal for misogyny to be part of hate crime. Now, I have to say, I agree with a lot of what she said on this. And I know some feminists might not actually agree with her, but there's a whole precedent to how hate crime got to be where it is today. And when you have certain caveats for what kinds of crimes are worse than others, you create exceptional cases for criminalizing certain types of behaviors and not others. Who decides that someone beating up someone just because they're a sadist or beating up someone because they're a woman or gay, which is really worse. See, I think the damage comes down to the person with broken bones, not why they were broken in the first place. It just seems that hate crime is about moralizing intent and not dealing with the reality of crime itself. Yeah, yeah, I, I, absolutely. And that's why I, I've said in the past that this is the purview of, of priests, not the police. 
It's down to the uh, the criminal justice system, of course, to prove mens re, obviously, uh, the guilty mind. But beyond beyond that, uh, the guilty mind linked to a guilty action, it's got absolutely nothing to do with the authorities and the police, what I think or believe. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And it's dangerous. And as you know, earlier we were talking about um, how the policing of language polices thought, and it's very, very true, because ideas are iterative as a rule. And they're iterative because we express them and somebody there hears them and then they challenge them. And uh, we refine our ideas through an iterative uh, language-based process. But if we're limited in what we can say, the fear of being recorded as a, as a hate criminal, um, then this is going to have a direct influence on our, our, our thought life and our belief system. And all of this, as far as I'm concerned, is designed to make cookie-cutter people who, who fits an ideological mould. So this is precisely, of course, what Stalinist Russia, what East Germany and what um, Adolf Hitler uh, attempted to create. And so to answer our original question, was, was Mr Justice Knowles using hyperbole when he warned um, that we've never had a, a Stasi, a Cheka or a Gestapo uh, in this country? I don't think he was being hyperbolic. I think that he was sounding the alarm on a very dangerous direction of travel. And I think the wise thing to do is to heed that alarm. Recently, we've seen with the Clapham Common vigil of Sarah Everard and the way in which the police handled that situation being quite distinct from how the police were handling last summer, the BLM protests or Antifa protests in the States, etc. The police are approaching demonstrations quite differently. Although I put a caveat here in what I'm saying, because when I read the BBC commentary criticizing the police, I thought, hmm, this was not, these were not radical feminists out there. No. Um, these sound like groups that have a lot of men in them because the BBC would never report on women's rights groups in this way. It got too much coverage for it yeah. to be actual feminists. And then sure enough, I joined the groups on Facebook and Reclaim the Streets is what I call meninism, yeah. not feminism. So how are the police approaching demonstrations? Well, they're, 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 this is the problem, isn't it? They're approaching demonstrations with a high degree of fear and favour. They're deciding which, they're, they're taking a very um, light-handed, light-touch approach to those groups whose ideology they either agree with or whose groups they're afraid of. And they're taking a very heavy-handed approach um, to, to other groups. So you have the ridiculous situation where um, Antifa can tear down statues in, in Bristol uh, or, or BLM can tear down statues in Bristol, but Posey Parker can't meet with a dozen other women in Leeds without getting arrested. It's it's absolutely absurd, and this is why this is why I think we need to be very very aware of anything that the when the police operate, and it's got even a, a slight whiff of political decision-making about it. I think that we have to be very careful and we have to resist it because that, that is the way to totalitarianism and that is precisely what Mr Justice Knowles um, warned about. Well, it also raises the question of 
who is sending these messages, not just to the police. We saw this with schools in certain parts of the country, especially Brighton and Hove, where schools are being sent the gender-bred person. So they can, from that image, preach the gospel of gender to the kids. And there is no oversight of which organizations are having access to enforcing how kids are learning, what kids are learning, or in the case of the police, how is it that private organizations, even charities and NGOs, are able to have a hand in making law surreptitiously, even if it's not officially a law? Well, this is a, this is all this is all law. This is all law and justice and punishment and censure by the back door. For instance, since since October of 2020 and after um, after my judgment against homicide police, the College of Policing, rather than being more cautious, they they they're now acting with a in a way that can only be described as absolute, utter, untouchable arrogance. Um, because since October 2020, they've now mandated and sent police on a mission to check the thinking of children, school children in schools. So if a child in a school now utters the wrong words, displays the wrong type of thinking, they are now eligible to be recorded on a hate database. Children. Children. Now, when I, when I look back, at what I was saying, you know, when I was 15 and 16, I had some crazy thoughts. You know, one, one day I'd be a bloody fascist. The next day I'd be joining the Communist Party. I was all over the place because that's what kids do. Kids are, kids are exploring the world of ideas. And you should be free to do that. Absolutely free to do that. Um, but now, of course, we run the risk of you know, you, you, you say the wrong thing, you object to the wrong thing, you say, I don't want to go into the toilet with, with that girl because that girl's got a set of, you know, a set of cock and balls. Um, suddenly, suddenly this now becomes a matter for the police. You can be, you can be put on a police crime hate database and your name will stay recorded for six years. And you imagine when you're, a, you know, you've left school, you, you're applying for a job, and suddenly getting turned down for jobs. Well, I wonder why. Well, it's because on an enhanced DBS check, a criminal records check, uh, my potential employer has found that I was investigated by the police for hatred. Well, you're not going to get the job, are you? You're not going to get the job. This is just, this is, this is criminal. This is why I'm so, so angry. And um, I'm so committed to pulling down this college of police hate crime nonsense. What is your take on the knowledge economy? You have stated to me why Marxism might be in need of a digital refresh. How is this related to Marxism? Yeah, I think it is. I think, I think it is. We've got a handful of billionaires, and it's not the means of production that they own, which is, you know, that's the problem that, that Marx and Engels addressed. But they've got them, but they do own and they do have a monopoly on the means of knowledge and the means of accessing knowledge and the means of dispersing knowledge. Now, that's got to be wrong, hasn't it? That's got to be wrong. And that's why I think that Marx, Marxism needs a refresh and that um, the uneducated proletariat need to rise up and, and tear it down. I, I think we're ripe for a, 
a digital version of Marxism, a, a revolution. I really do, and I think it's I think it's necessary because if we're not careful, we're just we're just going to have access to that information which the ruling class decide we're able to have, and that undoes that that undoes all the work of the Reformation. It does it undoes all the work um, of the printing press. It undoes um, it undoes all the work that um, that, that Tyndale did uh, in translating the Bible from the from from Latin and Greek into into English into the the, you know, the, the common tongue. It undoes all of that, and it's simply terrifying. And I think we need to wake up. And you know, I think Marxism needs a needs a refresh. I think it needs a digital refresh, and we need to we need to tear down these um, these these organizations. Easier said than done, given that during lockdown, most people are at the whim of Amazon for their groceries, etc. You know, it's it's really frightening. Oh, I, I agree. I, I agree. It's, 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 it's not easy. Revolution isn't easy. And I, and I don't you know, I'm not expecting some sort of Russian style, Russian style coup where we we put jeff bezos and mark zuckerberg and uh etc up against the wall and shoot him but we, we've got to do something though haven't we we've got to do something to, to take the means of knowledge out of the hands of, of the few and give it to give it give it back to the demos we have to well this is a critique i've made for some time about the way that academics are taking over labor party democratic party politics in the cases of the us and the uk uh, or the left, even further left than those two parties, has been taken over by the managerial class and academics. This kind of wokery pays the bills for academics. As yeah. you know, academics aren't easily thrown out of their positions. And so it makes mm. it all the more easy for them to spin that hamster wheel of oppression narratives. And these are fake oppression narratives because one thing that strikes me when I do speak to people about identity politics is some have come to say to me, well, there is real poverty, there is real suffering, and we're doing a disservice to the real suffering in the world because suffering isn't someone misgendering you. Suffering isn't even believing that you have the right to be called a certain pronoun. I mean, this is ridiculous. Hmm. So again, the atomizing force of late capitalism with people in Anglophone countries primarily believing that their identity yeah. rests solely upon you gendering me correctly, Harry. Not ironically, years hmm. ago, I was up for a job at the University of California at Berkeley and the first five minutes of the interview were the interviewees on the other end of the line, because it was a telephone interview, they were shocked that I was a woman because they assumed I was a man. And I said, this is for a gender studies position. So we <laughs> see that even the gender theorists themselves are unable to put together the problems of what Judith Butler calls the incommensurability of difference with real life mm -hmm. politics. And this is the irony is that what Butler stewed up in this potion of hers over the years has resulted in there being an abyss between what elite academics think or pretend to think and what most of the world knows.
And this is a real problem yeah. where you see people, I get very annoyed when I'm reading on Twitter or Facebook and people say, well, I believe that there are only two sexes. Excuse me, but there are two sexes. This isn't a belief system. This isn't the Protestant no. Reformation. This isn't a religious discussion, but we've been foisted into the center of a religious discussion by religious zealots. So I'm thinking of my interview yeah. two days ago I had with Linda Blade from Canada, who's been dealing with the sports side of this. And she yeah. said something that echoed for me very much, because we were talking about how when you make the suggestion that these men make their own sporting categories, create your own lobbies to have trans male or trans whatever you want to call yourself, they immediately say no because it's part of the social performance. And she calls it social therapy. Blade said, well, this is their social therapy. They won't ever want to create their own categories because they want us to confirm their identity. That's why they're forcing themselves into our sports, into our locker rooms. So we can say, you're just one of the gals, as someone said on Twitter yeah. the other day, you know, I just want to bring cupcakes to your house. And I'm thinking, have you been living in Doris Day in Rock Hudson land? Because she's unreal and he was gay so we're yeah. being <laughs> exactly. stuck in the worst of movies with these i'm just a gal and when you see like a lot of these men who claim to be transgender they're just men the images they give off of i'm just feeling girly today and you just i i have to hold back getting sick to my stomach because some of these images are so creepy they're incel-esque mm. They have all the projections of women through this kind of prism of fantasy. It's often rapey yeah. and it's often 50 years ago. Like, it, did the transgender identity have like a subcategory for people who are transgender in circa 1958? Because some of the images are vexing from that point of view that it's all about vestiture. I don't care that Jackie Kennedy's style is beautiful or not. I personally don't like that aesthetic. But when I see that being ramped up over and over again, I see 1960s style as being my gender identity. I'm thinking, okay, be a guy who wears that. But I still don't see where the obligation for compelled speech fits into this and where I have to worry about my employment because some guy reports me because I called him. A guy. I don't understand who who, who said that. Um, you know, your ears get priority over my eyes. I just don't understand that. You know, why why should why should I betray my tongue to satisfy your ears and your sense of self? It's absolute nonsense. For, for, for me, for me, I think gender gender politics. It's this weird mashup of the extremes of ethnomethodology. Uh, where everything is a performance and and strict and strict fascism because as I think as I wrote, wrote for you as far as I can tell that um, gender politics is a is a form of fascism because fascism was a form of was a form of identity politics with you know with Aryans at one end of the spectrum and you know Jews blacks and Irish uh, at, at the other end of, of the spectrum and for me I see very very little difference I I, I think it's um I think it's very very dangerous and i think um i think it's quite ironic that the gender that the real tras and gender ideologists call us the fascists 
when when they're so then they're so much closer to actual fascism than they could possibly imagine. Well, exactly. I mean, who is to say that you have to mirror my perception of me as being X? Like I use the example often of say, I think I'm a great cook and I serve you a souffle that tastes horrible. But you're obliged to say that it tastes great and that it's the best souffle you've ever had. That is where yeah. we are. And I interviewed a psychologist who works with the Tavistock about eight years ago. And he told me something I've yeah. never forgotten. And he says, and he's been involved now the last few months on Twitter over this. He said, I can put your hand in warm water, but I can't compel you to feel it as cold. And I'm thinking that's where this right. is now. We are being compelled to say what I see is a woman. And that will just never happen for me. And it's honestly not happening for the trans allies. They're just lying to be nice or quote unquote nice. The whole thing is make believe and dress up. That's what it is. It's make believe and dress up, or it's or it's or, or there's mental illness there. Um, but most of it, I think, is make believe believe and dress up. Yes, and a huge side helping of narcissism. Oh, absolutely dollops of it. Absolute dollops of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that we could even put mental. I mean, there are people, and we've seen them on on social media who have serious mental health issues, but a large part of the trans movement the allies especially because often we're talking about people that we don't know we're just on facebook or twitter but often these are people who would be you know as they like to call us cisgendered um but these are just regular people and a lot of them might also be trans uh folks and they like to go and beat us on the head with their doxa and the irony is that when they call us cis, my invariable response is, but I don't have a gender to fix. See, you say you have a gender that's misaligned. Fair enough. You say you need to align that. Fair enough. You say you have aligned it by doing this, this, and this. Okay. That means by virtue of your own definition, you are both trans and cis because you have aligned, you have aligned your misalignment. Me, on the other yeah. hand, I'm neither. I claim to have no internal gender. I claim to neither be aligned nor misaligned. I claim to be a human yeah. who's just struggling to get through this pandemic. How's that? I'm cis-pandemic yeah. averse. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I, I, the, the hopscotch they invoke to get around their identity and then they say, but everyone has an identity. You're transphobic for saying that other people don't have this identity. And I'm like, Anyone who says they want to have that identity is free to both have it and to claim they have it. But please don't project yeah. that all of us must have this identity because from the beginning of time, men and women have been trying to just get up, hunt for something to eat, find a way to cook that something to eat and, you know, so forth and so on. And here we are tens of thousands of years later, trying to get through the day without having ridiculous discussions like this. Now, this makes me wonder, though, if what Blade says, which she witnesses within the sporting domain, that these men are trying to encroach upon women's sports so that they can act out their social therapy of being women, forcing the IOC, Canadian sporting divisions, etc., and down to individual female athletes having to parrot trans women. 
that's what it comes down to. It's a magnificent bullying tactic. It's almost, it's theatrical, if you really deconstruct it enough. It's theatrical, it's coercive, and it, it, would, be, it would be quite amusing if it was just a you know, minority cult uh, off doing it, you know, in the woods somewhere. But um, it's not, is it? It's it's gone. It's gone absolutely mainstream. And now we've got the ridiculous situation where the police are are enforcing us, uh, are enforcing this 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 disbelief system. I mean, to the extent you you know you, you mentioned uh, women in sport and trans women in sport during one of the many many um, trans history months that, that that we have. We've just come out of one in February. <laughs> Sounds like lockdown. <laughs> the national, the national LG police um, Twitter account was was tweeting how great it was that uh, trans women are now in women's sport, and you know if that's if that's their cultish thing, let them say it. Um, they shouldn't be saying it's police officers, but hey oh. Um, but what what was really disturbing that when when women pointed out that they didn't necessarily agree with this and that they couldn't join in with the, uh, the with the celebrations of having um, men in dresses in women's sports, the National Police LGBT Twitter account threatened to threatened to um, report them all for hate. I mean that is that is, I, you, where do you begin with that? Where do you begin with it? That the police are. Uh, the police are going on Twitter and just reporting for hate people who disagree with them. And for the large part, it happens to be women. It's, um, it's misogyny in a uniform. It's, it's absolutely terrible. Now, when we try and bring this national LGBT police to account, you can't. We wrote to the College of Policing and said, who are they? And they said, now to do with us, we don't know, right to the individual forces. So we then find, we then write to the individual forces and they come back and they say, nothing to do with us, Gov. We, we don't know who they are. Well, who are they? And how do, how do we bring them to account? And that's why this week um, I've started, uh, we, you know, Fair Cop has started uh, our own database of hate where we are naming as haters individual police officers who are part of the National Police LGBT squad. Um, and we've, we're, we're playing by their rules. We're going to hold them on our database for six years. And should they apply for a job, we're going to reveal it to their employers. So, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, mate. Yes, I saw that. Um, it's an excellent tactic, although people might call you up as being a hypocrite, although you're doing their own performance, mirroring them, of course. Well, the difference, the difference is, of course, that we're doing it out in the open. When they record people, they do it in secret. That's that's the big difference. And of course, when if they lay down, you know, once they, if we defeat the hate crime guidance, then we'll we'll put this tactic away. You know, but at the moment, why shouldn't they have a taste of what it feels like to be told you're in a database of hate and we're going to reveal it? Now, it's all smoke and mirrors because. All we're doing is mirroring back to them what it is that they they're, they're doing publicly. There's nothing secretive about it, which of course is what they do. And and our threat to reveal it is of course entirely hollow because they've already revealed it themselves. But it's just um, I suppose it's performative a little bit, and it's just to give them a, a a taste of their own medicine and also to allow allow women and gender critical people a sense that. We don't have to sit back and take it, but you know we're fighting back a little bit. It's sort of good for morale, if nothing else. 
in Fair Cop, you're a group of various professions. You have people from、yeah. the legal field. Can you tell us about Fair Cop and what your plan is going forward now that your case has been heard? Okay, so our case has been heard.、Um, I, I don't know what the future of Fair Cop is. In all honesty, I, I think I think we'll keep holding、uh, the police to account until until they until they get back to doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is policing without fear and favour, upholding the law, and、um, keeping the the Queen's peace. Once they start doing that, and once they've stripped their uniforms of rainbow epaulets, and once they've stopped taking the knee to one group and being overly harsh on another group,、um, then we'll pack up and go watch Netflix. But until then,、um, we're going to keep holding them to account. Oh, oh, oh.